Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and you're listening to the October edition of Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this month's podcast, should the Conservatives' alliance with right-wing and some say anti-Semitic parties in Eastern Europe cause discomfort for the Tories and concern for British Jews? Plus, kosher face. No, not an anti-Semitic insult from Warsaw or Riga, but a warm portrait of the ultra-Orthodox Lubavitch community in Brooklyn. We speak to the photographer behind an original new exhibition. And I'm thrilled, I'm on Spilkers, I'm excited because hip-hop Hasidic reggae artist, I know, not an obvious fit, but reggae superstar Mattis Yahoo will be live in the studio for some beatboxing later. Maybe I'll leave that to the master. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. What may have begun as a way for David Cameron to appease Tory Eurosceptics is now snowballing into a controversy embroiling the Anglo-Jewish community with serious consequences. Earlier this year, when the Tories withdrew their MEPs from the mainstream European People's Party and joined the ranks of the newly formed European Conservative and Reformist Group, It was hailed as a smart way for the Tory leader to placate the anti-Brussels wing of his own party. But how closely did he scrutinise his new partners, including the Polish Law and Justice Party and Latvia's For Fatherland and Freedom Party? Joining me is acclaimed historian David Cesarani from Royal Holloway. Welcome, David, to Sounds Jewish. Hello, Jason. Uh, we did invite to the studio both the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, Stephen Pollard, and former Sounds Jewish guest, Stuart Pollack, director of the Conservative Friends of Israel. Both declined the invitation. Uh, David, I'm delighted that you accepted ours. Can you tell us exactly what the row's about? And let's start with the Polish leader of this new alliance in European Parliament, Michael Kaminsky, because he seems to be uh, the figure that's been blown up and put on spreads across newspapers. Well, Michael Kaminsky is quite a colourful figure within Polish politics. The party that uh, he he leads, Law and Justice Party, um, a relatively new party, is right-wing. It is much further to to the right than the the Conservative Party is, and I think that alone ought to have raised some question marks in the minds of, of, of the Conservatives. But the Law and Justice Party has been in coalition governments in Poland. It has been allied with parties even further to the right, explicitly anti-Jewish parties that have espoused Holocaust denial. Mm. I mean, um, this is this in particular sort of surfaced when uh, the Polish government uh, apologised for the horrific pogrom at the Yedwabne, yes. Yedwabne. Uh, in 1941, where 300 Jews were rounded up and put into a, a church and burned, and Kaminsky campaigned not to apologise about this. This attack on the Jewish community of Yedwabne was spontaneous. It was not organised by the Germans. It was a case of Polish Christians falling upon their Jewish neighbours with whom they'd lived peacefully Mm. for decades and slaughtering them and stealing their property. After the war, uh, many of those involved in the Edvabne massacre were put on trial, and it was the trial records that provided the historian Jan Gross with this explosive material. Now, the point that Jan Gross wanted to make in his book is that the Poles were not guilty of what we call the Holocaust, but nevertheless had been complicit with aspects of German policy, had allowed anti-Semitism in Polish society to lead to terrible acts of persecution against the Jewish population, violence against the Jewish population. And the Polish president at the time apologised. He went to Yerwabne 
and he apologised on behalf of the Polish people. There was a, quite a ceremony. Yes. It was it televised, was, there were, the foreign press were invited. It was, it was really quite, a, quite a, a... There was some pomp and circumstance about it. It was, and partly as a result of that, President Krasniewski was accused of being Jewish, and there is some... He does have some Jewish origins, but it was very... The reaction of the right of the nationalists in Poland was absolutely typical. First of all, they claimed that the international controversy was got up by Jews abroad. It was a Jewish plot, a Jewish conspiracy. And secondly, that if there had been violence against the Jews, the Jews had it coming to them because they had welcomed the Soviets when the Soviet Union invaded the eastern half of Poland in, in, in 1939. Now, this is a canard. This is a lie. And it is a lie that Mikhail Kaminsky has perpetuated. And shamefully, it is a lie that the editor of the Jewish Chronicle has allowed to be repeated in the pages of that august journal. Small numbers of Jews who were communists welcomed the Soviets when they invaded Eastern Poland in 1939. Many more Jews were glad to be occupied by the Soviets and not the Germans. But Poland's history in this is, is extremely complex. And if, if Michael Kaminsky is running for uh, the Polish parliament, to, to ally yourself with a, a controversial aspect of being blamed uh, by a, a foreigner, let's say, Jan Gross, a book that's published in America, th this would be an act of, of politics as well, wouldn't it? To distance yourself from this and to actually react against that. If you want votes, you're going to react against this, people well, who are pointing the finger of blame at your people. Jason, you're absolutely right. And I think this is one of the uh, most despicable aspects of, of Kaminsky's politics, that he is an opportunist and he's a populist. And when he sensed that there was local outrage in Yedvabne and the region around it, and that he could tap this in the course of his campaign to get elected to, to office, he did so with great cynicism. And he has espoused homophobic views, ultra-Catholic views. He has said whatever he thought would help him to get elected in the highly charged atmosphere of Polish politics. And this is not the kind of man with whom a responsible centre-right party should be associated. Well, David, this man, Michael Kaminsky, he, he's, a, he's a friend of Israel. He goes to Israel, he's warmly received. Why is he then invited by the Conservative Party to the conference, by the Conservative Friends of Israel to their little do there as well? He sits next to the Israeli ambassador for Britain. Why would they embrace this rather large man and this man courting, who brings so much controversy in his wake? Why would they be seen so publicly before before we um, continue further with that, uh, we must hear from uh, the director of the Conservative Friends of Israel, Stuart Pollock, who we did invite onto the programme, as I said earlier. Uh, he has not uh, been able to come onto the programme, uh, but he did send us this statement, and I'd like to get your reaction to the statement after we've heard it. Comments about the Conservative Party and their European allies are frankly preposterous. Suggestions that the membership of the European Conservatives and reformists are anti-Semitic and Nazi sympathisers is unfounded and outrageous. This offends me, both as a Conservative and as an active member of the Jewish community. Earlier this month I was in Israel with Mr Kaminsky. During his time in Israel, he was warmly received by the Israeli government. They were grateful to him for all he has done for Israel in the European Parliament. Some groups are being manipulated to play Mr Miliband's political games. This is very naive and unhelpful. I'd like to see Mr Miliband and others check their facts and then retract their comments at the earliest opportunity. Stuart Pollack, Director of Conservative Friends of Israel there, wants people to retract their comments at the earliest opportunity. Outrageous, preposterous, your reaction, David Cesarani. 
Well, I, I think that Stuart Pollack has got a point. I don't think it's appropriate to denounce uh, Kaminsky or his party as being anti-Semitic or pro-Nazi. That's not very helpful. And it certainly is pro-Israel. But I think that Pollack is, 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 is dodging the substance of the issue. Kaminsky represents a kind of ethno-nationalist politics in Poland that is totally foreign to us in the UK, and it's totally foreign to centre-right politics in, in most of Western Europe. Now, the fact that Kaminsky has gone to Israel and is nice to Israel, frankly, doesn't help us to understand the position that he is taking on a range of issues in Poland. The fact is that many right-wing, even far-right leaders in Europe have been beating a path to Israel and particularly to Yad Vashem. Gianfranco Fini in Italy is, is a perfect example of this. They feel they have to cleanse their parties of any association with anti-Semitism to get rid of the image of the collaboration with the Nazis from the 1930s. They are reinventing the far right. Mm -hmm. The far right they are reinventing is very heavily anti-Muslim, and therefore they think, well, the Jews are our natural allies, the Israelis are our natural allies, so we can actually kill two birds with one stone by uh, making a pilgrimage to Yad Vashem and being seen in the company of the Israeli ambassador. But that does not alter the nature of their exclusivist ethnic national politics. These far-right parties are intolerant. They do not support the kind of diversity which, to the credit of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, is a plank of the Conservative Party's uh, policies. And that is why they really, the Conservatives just stop fudging the issue and face the fact that these parties in Eastern Europe have a very different agenda. They have a very different backstory and they are not suitable partners. Exactly, but, but most of that area of Europe is emerging. They are emerging from a history of, of being behind the Iron Curtain, they're emerging to, to get in touch with their own rediscovery of their own history. Uh, uh, Varja, the great Polish filmmaker, made a film, Katyn, uh, mm -hmm. recently about this confusion, about whether uh, the Poles were to blame or the Soviets were to blame or the Nazis were to blame for uh, massacres of intellectuals, Jews. Uh, these are very, very complex times for those countries that are emerging. Latvia is another country that has a, a very Well, let's talk about picture. Latvia, because I think Latvia is a perfect example. Uh, the uh, Fatherland of Freedom Party in Latvia uh, willingly supports the annual parade of Latvian war veterans, uh, which includes men who served voluntary or as conscripts with the Waffen-SS under German uh, rule. Now, to many ethno-nationalists in Latvia, people who celebrate every day their freedom from Soviet rule, these men are national heroes. Latvian ethno-nationalists, who are not very nice to the Russian minority in their country, regard the suffering of Latvians at the hands of the Soviets in 1940-41 and after 1945 as comparable to, if not worse than, the suffering of the Jewish population. If you go to the state-run war museum in Riga, or the uh, Museum of Occupation, which was set up by uh, emigre Latvians, you will see barely a reference to what we call the Holocaust, the suffering of, of Latvian Jews, the mass murder of Jews 
on Latvian soil, but you'll see an awful lot about the suffering of the Latvians at the hands of the communists, many of whom are identified as Jews. It is part and parcel of Latvian politics, Lithuanian politics, Polish, Hungarian, Romanian politics, that anti-communism, that the bitter memories of Soviet domination, the years in the Soviet bloc, leach into a uh, heroization of the people who fought the Soviets during the Second World War mm-hmm. doing- on the side of the Germans, often committing atrocities with the SS. Is it really just for Holocaust obsessives to, to kind of keep nudging away and say, well, don't forget the Holocaust? No, this is not about Holocaust obsessives. Every country has a conflicted history as, as a result of the Second World War. Even Britain has a difficult history. But we, I think, have confronted our history boldly. Uh, we have a relatively good story to tell. And I think it really behoves British politicians, as well as celebrating Britain's heroic resistance to Nazism and fascism, to make friends with people in Europe and in Eastern Europe who can trace their lineage back to the resistance to Nazism, not collaboration with Nazism and the Germans for whatever reason, and to stop fudging the issue and pretending that Uh, the Jews had in some way brought the Holocaust on themselves by being pro-communist, pro-Soviet. This is an East European lie, a distortion of history, and it has to be challenged by historians and politicians and the public in the West and not colluded with. The state, the press, the law, the police, the army... How can anybody who understands the part played by these institutions respect such poisoners of the human mind and enemies of the Commonwealth? No great revolution or change was ever accomplished without force. Those are familiar sounding words, you think, the words of a violent jihadist in a so-called martyrdom video, a final statement before committing an act of terror. Except they don't come from Islamist extremists in the 21st century, but from British anarchists, many of whom were Jewish at the start of the 20th century. People intent on destruction to realise their aims. It's the subject, at least, of a fascinating, highly original and multi-layered Channel 4 documentary called The Enemy Within. David Cesarani from Royal Holloway, he is still here in the studio. And I'm also joined by actor Philip Arditi, who has played an anarchist in the recent National Theatre production of England People Very Nice. Philip, welcome to Sounds Jewish. Thank you. Hello. Uh, You played uh, an an anarchist. Uh, What did you do to get into your role? And just tell us a bit about where the anarchist came in in in, in that play in England People Very Nice. Yeah, it's quite interesting, really, because the play England People Very Nice by Richard Bean was about four four generations of immigration into Bethnal Green. The first one being the Huguenots, and then the Irish, then the Jews, and then the Bangladeshis. And, uh, of course, uh, one of the points in the play, there were many points, uh, was the uh, the violence that uh, already established minority communities did or, or exercised towards the newly arriving immigration, immigration communities. Each one. That's right. So the, French, the exactly. so the French were violent towards the... Uh, the Irish, the Irish were in turn violent towards the Jews, and then and then this carried on, and uh, of, we all played parts in each act, which would which which sometime were violent in the Jewish acts. Uh, for example, in that act, I played a part called Chitsikov, who was from uh, Belozhesk. My character particularly had to put a bomb to uh, Aldgate train station and, and did, and then ran away. Now I'm not sure if historically this is a, 
a, a fact. I know that there were some bombs and explosions uh, uh, in in our case. So there was we were meeting in order to organise some uh, revolutionary act. Are, and, are you uh, Jewish yourself? I am. Yes, I'm, I'm a Sephardic Jew from Turkey. So, uh, so it was. So we were all. I mean, people. The cast was from all over the place, really. David, you're still here, uh, which is great. The film, The Enemy Within, um, is is a controversial film. Uh, a film that uh, that got you rather angry. Well, I, I think it's. Uh, first of all, it's a very brave film, and I think that uh, Joseph Bullman is to be congratulated for uh, giving a voice to I- Islamist uh, radicals and for trying to take us into their. Their, their, their mindset to understand what, what motivates them. But I, I found the comparison with anarchists at the turn of the century, Jewish anarchists in particular, very disturbing. Um, in order to make the comparison to suggest that what's happening today is, is nothing new, Joseph Pullman frankly played around with history in a way that verged almost on falsification. The, 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 the Jewish anarchists were by and large a very peaceful bunch. Um, they were not very Jewish. Um, uh, Philip, I think, can, can, can say talk about how uh, Jewish anarchists used to uh, munch sandwiches outside a synagogue on Yom Kippur to get up the nose of the Jewish community. <laughs> did you eat sandwiches outside the synagogue? We did. That was one of the other scenes uh, outside Baking the sandwich. synagogue. Yeah, what's very interesting about the play was that uh, we, it, the synagogue was uh, before a church and after a, a, a mosque. Unlike Islamist uh, radicals uh, who misguidedly or otherwise claim to be acting in the name of their faith, in the name of, of Allah, the Jewish anarchists, Jewish uh, political radicals were acting in the name of a secular ideology. Yes, I mean, I was, I was quite surprised to find out that there were Jewish anarchists. It's not a, it's not a very Jewish oh. concept to be anarchist. I mean, to, 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 to make some kind of mess, to kind of make some noise and kind of make a fuss, that's a bit Jewish, but to be an anarchist. Well, I think Joseph Bullman explained that quite well. These were Jews who had come from the Tsarist Empire where they had suffered uh, oppression. They came to the east end of London where the economic and social conditions were miserable. Many of them were radicalised by exploitation in sweatshops and they gravitated towards the left wing of politics. Uh, Most of them towards mainstream left wing uh, British politics getting involved in the trades union movement. Only a tiny few anarchists and they were utterly ostracised by not only the mainstream Anglo-Jewish community but by the immigrants themselves. But uh, Bullman in, in documentary takes uh, quotations from newspapers, from the Daily Telegraph, from the Times, from the Jewish Pulpiteer, from the Jewish Chronicle itself, uh, and, and he puts these words in the mouths of some radical Muslims, also in the mouths of uh, a radio host, Nick Ferrari, Gary Bushell, uh, and Vanessa Phelps, to show that the reaction at large uh, was much the same, uh, that these things were going on 100 and 120 years ago. Even the most ordinary British criminal is never a wanton murderer. But these foreign desperados stick at nothing. It's a simple Because system. they're second-class citizens, Gary Bushell, yep. because they're all anarchists and criminals, yep. Vanessa Phelps, we simply ignore well, them. Well, why should we acknowledge them? People, like you, well, people like you are, are like ostriches, mate. You've yeah. got your head in the sand. You don't well, see... You see what you want to see. Well, someone... take a walk so it, it's a clever conceit. It's a clever conceit, but it just doesn't work. It's not historically accurate. And I think it makes it harder to understand the terrible tension under which Muslims in this country live today, it doesn't really help us to formulate a sensible public policy by comparing unlikes. I think we need to look at the problems facing Britain, its Muslim population and Islamophobia today in the terms that are appropriate for now. 
a fascinating mm. glimpse of history uh, in it, as it's used today, David. So thank you very much for that. Philip, where, where will we see you next? Uh, <laughs> well, I've just finished something called Five Days for the BBC One, and that should be out in some, sometime in the new year. Five days. That's right, and you yeah. Play, what are you playing in that? I play a doctor, actually, an Arab doctor. A nice, no, an Arab doctor. <laughs> yes, that's I, right. Yes. My son, the doctor. My son, the doctor, but from me see, <laughs> everyone wants a nice doctor. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for, you. for coming on and sharing your memories of, uh, of uh, eating bacon sandwiches on the national stage. That's right. <laughs> uh, David Cesarani, thank you. Thanks. When you think of fashion photography, what are the key catwalk destinations for you? London, of course, Paris, Milan, Stamford Hill, Brooklyn, anyone? Well, now those places could soon be seen on the fashion circuit because Frederick Aranda, who's photographed the likes of Agnes Dean, Natalia Vodjanova and Jemima Khan, has now added a series of Hasidic rabbis to his fashion portfolio in a new exhibition called Kosher Face. Aranda exhibits thousands of faces from the ultra-Orthodox Lubavitch community, both in the States and in Britain. Sounds Jewish producer Sarah Peters spoke to Frederick and started off by asking him how a nice Jewish fashion photographer like him got involved with this lot in the first place. Everything started when I uh, was looking for a place to stay in my final year at Oxford and I ended up um, having to look through classified ads and found an ad saying Jewish household, so I thought that would be an interesting experience. I didn't really realise how Jewish the household was but as soon as the Lubavitch rabbi of Oxford opened the door I, I, I kind of um, understood that it would be quite a, an orthodox experience and um, effectively the rabbi of Oxford and his wife and his children they became pretty much like family to me so I started taking pictures of them in their everyday activities and um, as people dropped by as their relatives came to visit for example I gradually started photographing them more and more and um, set up a little studio in my room there and um, people would just drop by and have their portrait taken every now and then. And how did they take to you as an outsider, although Jewish yourself? How did they view you? Well, this is the fascinating thing about Lubavitch. I expected them to be quite closed and to be quite suspicious of outsiders, but um, this is really what makes the Lubavitch very different from other sects of Orthodox Judaism, is that they're very much um, interested in meeting people from outside of their community, and they are very much up to date with modern world and technology and news, and they really live in this world, not in an insular community. So... It was, um, they were extremely open-minded. They were very welcoming. They didn't judge my choices and my life and uh, the fact that I wasn't as religious as them and that I'm not still to this day. So in your exhibition, Kosher Face, it also includes many, many photos and studies of the Lubavitch in Crown Heights. Can you kind of set the scene a bit? Can you describe what it's like? Absolutely. Crown Heights is in deepest Brooklyn. It's all based around Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights, which is basically a a long avenue. And for six blocks, you've got alternating Jewish and Afro-American households, basically. So it's very much a mixed community in that sense. But there's a high concentration of Lubavitch living there. I spent quite a lot of time there and I took so many photos, but um, some of them really stand out. There were some uh, amazing scenes during a conference there where 3,000 rabbis from around the world uh, all flew into Crown Heights. But there was incredible energy there and the vastness of the crowd, just this 
crowd, this sea of rabbis, basically. It was almost an army of them. I thought that was quite a moving thing to see. You were also given uh, access to more personal events, weren't you, like weddings and circumcisions. Can you explain what that was like and how you were given access to that? One particular wedding t- that took place this summer in in Crown Heights was was a real highlight for me. I mean, I I rarely experience so much fun as uh, the dancing the hora, you know, dancing the the group dance afterwards after the ceremony. In Orthodox weddings, there is a division between men and women. There's a partition, and and men dance on one side, women on the other. But uh, as a photographer, I was I was allowed to. Um, alternate between both and uh, go from you know the men to the women and back and um, got to see really both sides of the of the celebration which I think is a privilege as a photographer really. Unmarried men and women are not encouraged to mix when you took portraits of the women they are a much less visible part of the Lubavitch community and they're very much covered up with a, a shaitel a wig and tights and, and long skirts. Was that an uncomfortable relationship? No, to be honest, they carry themselves with a lot of confidence and they are they know who they are. They're, they're very comfortable within their own skin. I'm used to photographing models and um, for once these are women who are not uh, really prioritizing vanity and fashion. They're actually thinking about other things and there's a lot more to photograph there in that sense. And Kosher Face opens at the Print Space Gallery in Shoreditch next month. Well, one of the more fascinating portraits of the Kosher Face exhibition is of Mattis Yahoo, the orthodox, Hasidic, chart-topping and critically acclaimed hip-hop reggae performer. Uh, he joins me now in the studio at The Guardian for Sounds Jewish. Thank you so much for coming on, Mattis. I know you're in London only briefly for a gig in Islington to promote your new album, uh, Light. Uh, how is the UK for you? Um, well, it's, I've only been here for a few hours. It's a lot cooler here than where I was uh, in Israel for the last month, so it's nice. It's like fall time. Right, you've been in, you've been in Israel. You've been uh, taking your particular brand, I suppose, of Jewish music uh, back to Israel. How did that go down? It was pretty nice. We had a big show in Jerusalem in the Sultan's Pool, which is where they say, like, the psalm, the valley of death, though I may walk through the shadow of death. We played a show right there in the valley, sort of uh, underneath the old city walls. It was beautiful. Your your music is, as I say, hip hop and, and reggae. It has a, a beautiful influence. Seems to me to be influenced by everyone from Bob Marley to even a bit of Jay Z. Seems to have kind of crept in there. You got a bit more more rocky in there. And you come from uh, Brooklyn, from Crown Heights. Is that right? Yeah. Um, but you weren't Mattis Yahoo when you were born. You weren't Mattis Yahoo when you were growing up. Who were you then? Well. Um... My name, my English name is Matthew, and so um, I took the name Matis Yahu at, um, in Hebrew school, and uh, and then when I later on became more religious, you know, and identified more closely with my Jewish identity, so I changed my name. 
when did you become religious? Because it was quite a transformation from your secular self to your religious self, wasn't it? I guess the seeds were sort of planted when I was 16. I went to Israel uh, for a few months, being in Israel for the first time and, and seeing Hasidic Jews and, and all these different types of Jews, all these different uh, paths within Judaism versus the kind of one path that I grew up seeing sort of made me start to th think more about it. And when I became religious, I started studying a lot of the, you know, Kabbalah and the, the mysticism and then also the the philosophy, the Hasidic philosophers and thinkers. And uh, I started to feel like I had this wealth of this spiritual tradition to, to pull from and to to sort of um, infuse my lyrics and, and my songs. Uh, last month on, on Sounds Jewish, we talked about uh, Leonard Cohen and his quoting from, from mm. Jewish texts. Your lyrics, too, are also quote uh, much from the Old Testament and from, and from Jewish learning. Uh, can you give me an example of, uh, of some of the songs where that's happened uh, and how you managed to, to, to bring that in to a very modern context? Well, I guess um, the first thing that jumps out is a, a song that is the opening song on the Live at Stubbs record, which was sort of the record that that it's I think today it sold about eight hundred thousand copies, and um, it's uh, it's the record starts with a line from uh, the the prayers well, Shmona Esrei, which is like the eighteen blessings, which is kind of like the core um, part of the prayers. We say it three times a day, and we start by saying a, a, a phrase. Um, which means open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. The life of a musician, even even call you a pop star, a rock star, a reggae star, hip hop star. It seems to me that it's it's very unusual to be. Uh, it's very difficult to be a, a committed Orthodox uh, Jew and still have the life of a touring rock star. How how do you manage to kind of balance the two? Presumably, you don't take gigs on on Shabbos. Yeah, it's just really a few basic things, you know. It's not it's not really too difficult, you know. It's not taking gigs on Shabbos, so no Friday night gigs. Um, uh, finding kosher food on the yeah, road. Yeah, that's not, not so easy. Not really a big deal. Most most places have kosher restaurants, and on my tour bus at home I have, like, kosher kitchen and a little barbecue. You haven't toured Wales, have you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rare to find people inventing unique sounds and trying to, to get unique sounds. I do sense, uh, Matis Yaho, that you're still finding yours, and there's many, many more chapters in the Matis Yaho story to come. But will you give us a little example of where you are now? I mean, we, we haven't got a, a band with us here in the studio, uh, but um, a little bit of beatboxing, which I know you do very impressively. Would you, would you, would you care to open up the beatbox for us, Matis Yaho? Sure. Um, this, is, this is, I guess, one aspect of what I do. Um, a lot of times now I'm playing with this new band called Dub Trio, and we do these kind of uh, extended jams with beatboxing and live instrumentation at the same time. So this is just a cappella. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-
in studio for this month's Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Mattis Yahoo, thank you very much indeed for that performance, for your interview. Wish you the best of luck with the rest of your tour. It goes on for months uh, across the, the, the US. And with your new album, Light, which people can download uh, legally from iTunes or iTunes, uh, or they can get it from, uh, at your website, mattisyahooworld.com. That's right. That is all we have time for on this month. Sounds Jewish. Huge thanks to all my guests, to Mattis Yahoo, of course, to David Cesarani, to Philip Arditi, and, of course, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters, it's peace out and goodbye. Shalom, shalom.